welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We are taping today on Thursday, July 16th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Paige Winfield Cunningham of the Washington Post. Hi, Julie. And Aaron Mershon of Stat News. Thanks for having me, Julie. So we're going to get right to the news because we have a lot of it, as usual. We're going to start this week with what I've been calling the war on Dr. Fauci, but that's obviously only a piece of what's going on this week. The Trump administration seems to have declared war on the entire public health establishment. What is the point of this? Does the administration think this is going to help them politically? Do they think this is going to help the pandemic? Well, it seems like they are divided on this because they keep sort of walking back and denying and saying that the Navarro op-ed attacking Fauci was just his opinion alone and not representative of the administration. We should say what that is because not everybody has kept up with all of the back and forth of this week. Right. So this White House economic person, not a public health person, um, wrote an op-ed attacking Fauci and there was this scramble to distance from it in some ways, but there have also been, you know, similar lines coming out of the administration. And so it's just all over the place. I thought the op-ed was especially galling. He said everything Tony Fauci has ever told me was wrong. And I think the White House sort of said, yeah, Peter Navarro is out on his own island here, but hasn't actually said that what Peter was writing in the op-ed, that they disagree with it. And obviously they were circulating those sort of opposition research points last weekend to a couple of outlets. And you see Trump himself, I think, has addressed it this week and said, what, I really like Tony Fauci as a person, but I disagree with him sometimes, which isn't exactly like a ringing endorsement of the public health messaging coming from this man. And But I think I, I feel like with Tony Fauci in particular, they do sort of have to be careful criticizing him because he has such public confidence and such support from so many people. I was just going to say, I think that's why a lot of this is so weird because Fauci could actually be a really good asset for this administration. I mean, he's someone who, to Aaron's point, is really highly respected, but he polls really, really well. While he might say things that contradict, you know, whatever random stuff Trump happens to be saying in any given day about the pandemic, because he is still employed by the federal government, he's not going to be out there bashing the administration like many other people will be. And I got to interview him a couple weeks ago, and he kind of made the point to me that he has to turn down a TV appearance because it's not approved by the administration. These TV programs instead will have a guest on who's going to go all out and just criticize the administration. And Fauci's point is, if he goes on there, he's going to give a more measured response. He's going to tell the public the truth, but he's not going to be kind of like an anti Trumper at the same time. And I think if President Trump was looking at this in kind of a rational way, he might see Fauci as an asset versus somebody to be like undermining. So all of it's very strange. In fact, I've talked to a lot of public health people who say that they feel like he's bent over backwards to the detriment of public health to be solicitous to the administration and to the administration's line. I mean, they worry that he's sort of gone over to the dark side, if you will. But Tony Fauci has been a major public health voice since I started covering health in the late 1980s when AIDS was the the big issue. And he was obviously very involved in the whole AIDS fight and research 
into AIDS. I went back and looked. It was George W. Bush that gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I mean, he's been a prized public health possession for every Democratic and Republican administration over the last 30 years. So what the administration thinks it's going to accomplish by trying to trash him strikes me as strange. I mean, is this more of just we're anti-science and we just don't believe what scientists tell us or they're always wrong? And it's worth pointing out, you know, in regards to the Peter Navarro op-ed, it wasn't just Fauci. It was all the public health professionals have given different advice over this pandemic because they all say we don't know a lot yet. And as we've learned more, they've changed their advice. That's how science and public health work. But it's been exploited to saying, oh, well, he was wrong. (laughs) But it's astonishing, really, that they want to play who has said incorrect things about the pandemic throughout the pandemic, because you could very easily pull up so many more egregiously wrong things that the White House has put out. Yes, like Julie said, some things that Fauci and the CDC said initially were you know, have have evolved based on what has been learned about the virus. And there has been even some, you know, public expressions of regret over previous guidance against, you know, mask wearing for the public, for example. But that's not the same thing (laughs) as the assertions that have come from our political rulers. (laughs) I, I, I wonder if this is like maybe a misguided way that Trump is trying to kind of like appeal to his base voters who are really angry about a return to the lockdowns and maybe the type of person who is out there saying like their freedom is threatened because they have to wear a face mask. Because I don't know like that a lot of these people necessarily had an opinion of Fauci per se before all of this happened. They kind of tend to believe what Trump tells them is true. And so if he's trying to play to that kind of anti-lockdown, the pandemic is over thing, maybe he thinks this is a way to go about it. But I also feel like he runs the risk of like alienating sort of more centrist Republicans who like don't want public health to be or Fauci to be undermined. So it's just kind of an odd tactic. But I don't pretend to understand politics. Like this is why I'm not a political reporter, because I I really everything I predict like doesn't come true. Well, I do understand politics, but I don't understand this. But let's move on. Um, So my late mom, who was also a health reporter, used to say that news is whatever happens to or in the presence of an editor. In this case, it's what happened to or in the presence of your podcast host. I got tested uh, because what turned out to be a false alarm positive encounter with someone. But it still took 10 days for the test results to come back. And that's in Maryland, which is allegedly one of the states with easier available testing. Uh, I, I actually was a good citizen and in quarantine for the first seven days of waiting for the test result to come back because that was the point where it had been two weeks since my potential exposure. Also, the person I was exposed to had subsequently tested negative. But 10 days is way too long for people to avoid all contact with other people. And there's no way to contact trace when you're more than three weeks away from the potential exposure. You know, we keep talking about how we're doing hundreds of thousands and millions of tests, but if people can't get their results in a timely manner, that kind of begs the question of whether all of this testing is of any use, right? Absolutely, especially for people who can't afford to miss work. There was just a CDC report from a field team that visited these low-income communities of color in Arkansas, and one of the things they found that people just kept saying over and over is when you have to wait almost two weeks for test results, it just doesn't even serve any use because you have to keep working. You can't afford not to. There aren't resources for people to follow the guidelines to stay home in quarantine. And then, you know, that's just happening across the country with these wait times and you have people across the political spectrum, state officials, lawmakers, 
begging the White House to implement some kind of national testing strategy. We're back to shortages of things like the chemical reagents needed to run the tests. Swabs are still an issue, even months and months after they first became an issue. There still hasn't been enough done at the federal level to ramp up domestic production or organize the distribution to different states. And that's why we're, we're seeing these crazy delays again. I think there's always this debate about what's the role of the federal government versus the state governments. And sometimes I think this has gotten kind of all mixed up um, in just the reporting about this because there is a role for each. And I think that there is a, a big responsibility here for the governors to ramp up testing. But what experts have told me is the federal government's role is to really help with the supply chain issues. And a lot of the supplies are kind Coming from overseas. And so there's a lot of competition among the states to get the supplies. And like Alice said, we're seeing this like shortage now as the testing has ramped up a lot in the areas in the South. Another thing I guess it strikes me is just the total um, disjoint between what we're so often hearing from um, members of the coronavirus task force and what's happening on the ground. And not to specifically target anybody, but to specifically target Brett Giroir. Um, You know, he is the guy that promised that we were going to be up to, what was it, 27 million tests per month. He promised this in March. And he said this was going to be happening shortly. Obviously, didn't. we're still not even up to that figure. And, um, you know, he actually threw out another really big number um, in a congressional hearing a couple weeks ago saying we're going to be doing 40 to 50 million tests per month by September and other folks in the administration have told me they're highly doubtful of that claim. But you hear Zerwa out there just claiming like he knows all about the supply chains and he's got all the communication with the labs and he he may have good communication with the labs, but I don't know that it's helpful to kind of be out there throwing out these big claims that, you know, then people are skeptical that's even going to come true. And while it is true that we have ramped up testing considerably, it's a real problem that these shortages seem to be kind of capping the number of tests that we can do even as demand goes up. We talked about April and May that we'd be able to send kids back to school in the fall because we'd be able to test them frequently, but we can't even, you know, and I know that the people in Arizona and Florida and Texas who are waiting eight, nine, and 10 hours to get their tests and then seven or more days to get their results back will say that, you know, it's not that easy to get a test, but certainly in a lot of other states, it's way easier to get the test than it is to get the test results. Um, That's not a success when it comes to testing. Well, and we're sort of stuck. I just remember in the spring, all of us were talking about how when the lockdowns lifted, we were going to have adequate testing capacity and then we were going to be able to do contact tracing. And I don't even think our country has gotten to a place where contact tracing is even part of the solution at this moment. That's kind of like step two, right? We haven't even really accomplished step one at this point, which is kind of discouraging. And to your point, Julie, you mentioned schools. You know, to me, that is the role that the federal government should be playing here in trying to get kids back to school is if the virus isn't contained, the school districts are really, really struggling because, you know, the situation hasn't improved as much as everybody had hoped and now doesn't seem like it's going to improve for the fall. I think it's interesting in this particular time to see how even what is seemingly a bureaucratic issue feels like a massive political change. Um, And I think that's partly because we've seen so many efforts from the Trump administration, I think from HHS to sideline the CDC more broadly to sort of move away from relying on those public health officials guidance and to frankly just sort of push aside what sort of their traditional role is. So I think people saw this admittedly bungled rollout of a new plan for collecting data from hospitals and immediately jumped down the throat of, oh my gosh, here is another example of sidelining the CDC. And I think in this case, 
I, I don't mean to take away from those criticisms, but I think there are also questions about how that data had been collected by the CDC, how hospitals were reporting both to federal and state and to the CDC and sort of what that data flow looked like. Um, and I think there are criticisms of how HHS had been asking for that data, right, and in terms of planning this. But I think it's also sort of to the point we've been making sort of another example of this sort of frenetic, disjointed lack of strategy. I don't want to call it a strategy because I'm not sure there is one, but just sort of I think that the there are people who are floored that I'm hearing from uh, that we don't have a clear way to report the data that's happening at these hospitals about how many deaths, how many patients they have with COVID, because those things really do inform the kind of supplies you need at these hospitals, the kind of, uh, even just remdesivir, the, the Gilead drug that um, has been proven as a COVID treatment. I mean, that right now the federal government is involved in allocating how much of that goes to each hospitals, and the data they're relying on to allocate it is often out of date. Although, I mean, there's also questions about, you know, whether there's, whether what's going to happen to this data, which when it goes to the CDC is made public. And when it goes to HHS, we don't know what's going to happen to it before it's yeah, made I think public. That's- a very fair question. Also, from the things are not going well at CDC files, uh, more than 10% of the agency's 11,000-person workforce signed a letter to Director Robert Redfield calling the agency out for systemic racism. I should point out this is something that goes back longer than Redfield's reign. The letters call for more diverse senior leadership, addressing racism in the agency's culture, and declaring systemic racism a public health crisis. CDC, as I mentioned, is in Atlanta, for those who don't know. Not that systemic racism is is confined to the South. We've seen that it can happen in the entire country. But this is definitely the first I've seen of these charges being leveled at an entire government agency. I mean, is there something special about CDC or did the CDC workers just sort of do what others have not yet done? Well, what I found interesting about the letter was that they specifically drew a connection between the pandemic's disproportionate impact on people of color and how CDC is tasked with investigating and suggesting how to address that. And they're saying, we can't do that. We can't analyze and combat public health racism in the country if we can't do it in our own offices. And I found that particularly interesting, especially as right now everybody is scrambling to understand all of the reasons why people of color are getting sick and dying at disproportionate rates. I mean, I thought the letter was extremely broad, first of all. They're making some really serious allegations, you know, internal to the agency, but then they're also calling for, you know, this declaration of racism as public health. I could see this being difficult because the letter is so broad. I could see it being challenging for managers to kind of respond to just because of the many kind of demands that they're making in the letter. The other thing I was a little confused by was, you know, they say in the letter that Black people can constitute 10% of senior leadership and executive positions at the agency. That's actually not like that far off proportionate to the population. I think 13% of the population are black um, and they're asking for an, the, the agency to commit to 25% of leadership being black. And obviously that would be like an overrepresentation. And so like that was a little bit strange to me. I just don't know what that, to, I mean, it's one thing to call for like fair representation proportionate to the population, but to go kind of a step further and demand that you have to show you're kind of anti-racist at the agency by like making sure that blacks are overrepresented. So I think if I were a manager, I guess I would have questions about that. The other thing is, you know, they do make serious allegations of these employment discrimination complaints. And they say in the letter that there were hundreds of them over the last 
last decade and that many of them were like not responded to or prompted retaliation. I would want more specifics about, you know, they say many. So is that is that most of them? Is that a majority? I mean, if it is if that is true, like it seems like the agency should be responding to that and looking into those complaints and figuring out, you know, why they weren't taken seriously. CDC is not having a great summer. <laughs> But we will. I'm sure we will see more. Well, before we leave COVID for this week, I wanted to bring up a New Yorker story that our podcast colleague Joanne Cannon sent along. That's going to be my extra credit this week. It's by Jane Mayer, and it's called "How Trump Is Helping Tycoons Exploit the Pandemic," and it's about how the Trump administration's relaxation of industry standards is helping giant corporations, often at the expense of their workers' health and safety. In particular, this story is about a reclusive poultry executive who's also a major donor to President Trump's campaign. I wanted to bring this up now because I feel like it's kind of a piece with the story about the CDC's issues with structural racism. These are some of the lowest paid workers, mostly people of color, doing some of the hardest work in America, and even their most basic protections are being dismantled in the name of keeping the food supply going. I know it feels like everything is happening at once, but does anybody else feel like stories like these are flying maybe more under the radar than they should? Yes, and I think that the role of OSHA needs a lot more attention as well. Um, I've only seen Democratic lawmakers, but possibly some Republicans have also said this as well, that they wanted a lot more clear rules and enforcement from OSHA on ways to keep workers safe in these essential industries, including in the medical space, because there just aren't a lot of clear guidelines and each employer and each site is making it up as they go and workers feel feel very unsafe and are speaking out and many have gotten sick. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a huge, it, the, the the problem of people getting sick and, you know, one of the things in the story talks about how they were allowed to actually speed up the workflow, which exposes the workers more because they have to be closer together in order to sort of do the processing. I mean, it's sort of, it's not just making them safe. I mean, in some cases, it's making them less safe. Yeah, I thought the story, the New Yorker story did a really good job of pointing out, I think the reporting on OSHA and the National Labor Relations Board was really really, really jarring. But I think also they sort of started to make the point that just that Trump is using this particular moment, this economic crisis to justify rolling back regulations at a speed and with sort of this shocking precision in a way that he really couldn't because of this sort of standard regulatory process that's been in place before there's sort of this economic emergency to point to do that rolling back that I think he's been eager to do for most of his presidency. The Trump administration's version of never let a good crisis go to waste. All right. Well, meanwhile, uh, that Affordable Care Act lawsuit before the Supreme Court that we've been talking about for two and a half years now, well, we've known that it wouldn't be decided before the election, but now it seems that it might not even be heard before the election. The Supreme Court has come out with its hearing schedule for October and the case isn't on it. I'm thinking that won't actually make that big a difference in terms of its being an election issue because, of course, the threat of the case is still there. Am I wrong here? How much of a difference would it make if the court actually, I mean, they could still hear it in like the first three days of November before uh, election day? Does it does it matter one way they or the other? They could hear it on election day, honestly. <laughs> it's true. That's <laughs> Which would point. be nuts, but it could happen. <laughs> Crazier things have happened. And they could still add it to October. They could announce additional days. But yes, it does look like it won't be heard before the election. 
as of right now. And I do think it makes somewhat of a difference because public attention has just reeled from one thing to the next, you know, from the pandemic to the economic crisis to the Black Lives Matter protests and back again. And I think that having a big case at the Supreme Court and all of the ensuing news coverage does focus attention and gives the people on both sides an opportunity to beat the drum about it. And I think when you have not just the presidential election, which obviously this has huge implications for that, given the Trump administration's position in the case against the Affordable Care Act, but also major implications for all kinds of Senate and House races, as well as attorneys general races. There are a lot of those going on in the country. There are people attempting to unseat some of the Republican attorneys general who brought the case against the ACA. And so you're going to see tons of ads and and pointing to that as reasons that they should lose their seats. And so I I think that this does somewhat not sweep it under the rug. Of course, you're going to see tons and tons of ads saying, you know, Republicans want to get rid of your health care no matter what. But I think that it does downplay it a bit not to have it before the court. I feel like this is like more than anything else, like sort of a missed media opportunity for Democrats, because I will say like the longer I watch the Supreme Court and uh, chief, the Chief Justice John Roberts um, decisions, it just seems like less and less likely to me that he would actually side with getting rid of the ACA. And I mean, granted, like he's the one who came up with the entire reasoning that it's a taxing power. And that's like what the opponents are trying to use to like get rid of it. But um, I think someone was saying the other day, Roberts has voted like with the majority on the court, like 95 percent of the time or something. So he's shown really clearly in this term that he is like really unwilling to side with these decisions to like totally overturn presidents. So I would be surprised. That's why I feel the politics of this are the most out front part of it. And like, you know, you just think about like what the media is covering and like it's great for Democrats when the media are covering the lawsuit because it's, you know, just the perfect opportunity for them to point out the administration's opposition to the ACA. And now that there if if there isn't going to be oral arguments before the election, probably most healthcare reporters are going to be spending a lot more time writing about this ongoing pandemic situation and the 50 billion different things related to the pandemic that we all are trying to juggle every single day. And we just aren't going to be like writing as much about the lawsuit, not because it's not important, but because it's not going to be out front as much in the news cycle. So just politically, I feel like I I would be I would guess that like Democrats would be pretty disappointed, um, you know, that oral arguments are going to happen later rather than sooner. We will obviously watch this space. Speaking of the courts, there is a flurry of action on reproductive health in the past week or two. First, a federal district court in Maryland has blocked the Trump administration's effort to require insurance companies to send physically separate bills for abortion coverage to people who buy their insurance from the ACA exchanges. This is something we talked about when the administration did it. This was originally part of a giant abortion insurance compromise that got the ACA passed. It was a sort of an intra-democratic fight. Alice, why'd the judge throw this out? It, it seems like that was kind of what the law implied one should do. Right. So the judge agreed with the groups challenging the law, which included all of your usual suspects of <laughs> the ACLU and Planned Parenthood. And they argue that this new rule, one, coerced states into abandoning their requirement that insurance companies on the Obamacare exchanges cover abortion. And it also could hurt individuals who get confused by getting two separate bills from their insurance company 
and having to pay each of them separately every month. If they don't do that, they could lose coverage entirely. And the plaintiff in that one was an individual sort of making that argument. There's a separate case from attorneys general making the harm to states argument. That case is in California, still ongoing. <laughs> so yeah, uh, it, it was it was pretty interesting. And this case has been sort of bubbling under the radar for a while. And I assume, I mean, this was just at the district court level. So I assume we have not seen the last of this. We have not seen the last of this. Well, meanwhile, the governor of Tennessee signed a sweeping abortion ban that kind of cleverly tried to start with a ban very early in pregnancy, um, but stipulated that if that got struck down by the courts, um, it would basically keep extending the ban until it could find a judge that would find it acceptable. Although I should point out that so far, no absolute bans have been found acceptable by the Supreme Court. Um, but literally five minutes after I got the press release saying the bill had been signed, I got another one from the ACLU saying it had been blocked in court. Um, Meanwhile, the Georgia so-called heartbeat bill that we talked about last year, the one that could ban abortion as early as six weeks in pregnancy, was also blocked by a federal judge, this time permanently, although, as Alice will point out, it's still a lower court. What's the status of abortion ban legislation in the states now that the Supreme Court has shown it's not quite ready to be as fully anti-abortion as some had predicted? Well, I, I think what we're seeing in those recent decisions is something that's been true for several years now, which is that while courts have allowed some of these narrower regulations to go through that in some cases have had a big impact and have led to lots of clinics closing, etc. They have not endorsed these sweeping abortion bans that directly violate Roe versus Wade by banning the procedure early in pregnancy prior to fetal viability, which is both what the Tennessee and Georgia laws would have done. The Tennessee law also included a reason ban, which courts have also not so far allowed to go into effect in a major way. You should say what a reason ban is. (laughs) Right. So basically banning abortion based on a woman's reason for having one uh, when that reason is the race, sex, or disability status of the fetus. And there are obviously a lot of privacy and free speech implications there that uh, courts are grappling with in several states. Several states have, have attempted to do this, passing reason bans. Yeah, you saw over the last decade or so a really concerted effort by the anti-abortion advocates to really chip away as much as possible in every way possible. And they really have run up against a lot of walls on a lot of this legislation. The two buckets they're kind of putting their hopes into at this point are the 20-week bans. They're based on the idea at the point at which a fetus could feel pain about halfway through pregnancy that you couldn't have an abortion past that point. Of course, we've talked about in this podcast, many, many states have passed those. The Supreme Court hasn't heard that. But that's much more of like a gray area as far as where they would land given the precedent set by Roe v. Wade um, and the viability standard. And then I think the issue of the reason for obtaining abortion based on disability or race or sex, um, there was a law in Indiana. I think the Supreme Court was asked to take up or consider a law in Indiana and it hasn't done so. But I think there are still hopes that ultimately that question might be one that's decided by the Supreme Court. But, you know, for... That was a law signed by Vice President Pence when he was governor, right? That's that's still kicking through the courts. Yeah. Right. It got sent back down to the Seventh Circuit, so it could very well come back to the Supreme Court later. Yeah. I think pro-lifers are are very, very angry at... at John Roberts. Um, and But it, what's interesting is like the fact that he hasn't been siding with them is sort of solidifying more than ever their support for President Trump because now their kind of strategy partly hinges on just getting 
you know, replacing one of the liberal judges with a conservative who's going to be more reliable for them. So, you know, who knows what's going to happen with RBG. Um, I sort of am starting to think she's going to, she's going to live forever. She's defeated, what, cancer like four times. Um, I mean, we know she was hospitalized this week. And of course, like our best wishes to her for recovery. But I mean, can you imagine the showdown if she were to step down this fall or something were to otherwise happen to remove her from her seat? Or one of the other liberals. All right. Well, finally, the House has actually started writing the spending bills for the fiscal year starting October 1st, as it should be doing, even though literally no one is paying attention. That includes the bill that funds the Department of Health and Human Services. And despite pressure to do otherwise from many liberals in the House, the bill as it's moving includes the so-called Hyde Amendment, which bars the use of funds in the bill to pay for abortion in most cases. Democrats clearly have enough votes in the House to pass the bill without Hyde. Why is it in there? This has baffled me a bit. It because they went ahead and included a provision rolling back to the administration's Title X rule. Just to recap, in case people have forgotten, that is the Trump administration's rule that led to Planned Parenthood getting cut out of the federal family planning program and uh, losing tens of millions of dollars they were getting in federal funding to provide contraception and and services to low-income folks around the country. So the House spending bill does include a provision winding back that rule, winding back some other Trump administration rules, and Republicans at the markup I covered were railing against that and saying, that it would lose their support because of that and that the Trump administration would veto it and it would tank the whole bill, which begs the question, if they're going to go for these other provisions that piss off Republicans and threaten final passage of the bill, why not go for Hyde as well? But my colleagues who cover the Hill did a good piece sort of digging into this and it seems like it was mainly out of concern politically for the more vulnerable Democrats in the House who are in these swing districts who are running, who don't want to run with ads saying that they voted either for or against (laughs) something related to directly funding abortions uh, with federal spending. Yes, I I was just going to say that because I say that almost every time we talk about this, that even though the liberals would like to vote for this, but the liberals aren't the ones whose seats are in danger in keeping the House a Democratic majority, it's those swing voters, it's those swing seats that are, and those people just don't want it to come up, which I think is is why they're not doing it. But then, of course, the liberals say, well, what's the point of having Democratic majority if we're not going to do this sort of thing? Anyway, this will, I'm sure, come up more also. So that is the news for this week. It is time for our extra credit segment now. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at heyhn.org slash what the health. Aaron, why don't you go first this week? Um, Okay, so my extra credit article is a New York Times story called Bottleneck for U.S. Coronavirus Response, The Fax Machine by Sarah Cliff and Margot Singer-Katz, obviously a regular on What the Health. Uh, It's a really interesting look about how, I know we've been talking about sort of the political fragmentation of the coronavirus response, but this is literally the technological (laughs) fragmentation of the coronavirus response um, about how there's not really a standard digital process for sharing test results between public health officials, between governments, between these hospitals. And so these results are coming in through all sorts of different formats, some digital, I think some by phone, and of course, archaically, the fax machine. And I think there's a problem across the medical sector. But of course, the federal government has really incentivized doctors' offices and hospitals to invest in electronic health technology over the last 10 years or so. And the same incentives have not existed in public health departments. So they're very reliant on fax machines, the article reports, and I think really struggling to keep up with the flood of faxes and flood of information, of course. 
Yeah, there was, I think there was one, I can't remember if it was in the story, or I heard Sarah talking about it in an interview where one of the public health agencies got like 40,000 results, and it was just literally the, the paper was flying around the office. And, you know, you wonder why people need to wait 10 days to get their test results. <laughs> Alice. Um, so I took a piece from the New York Times Magazine by Janine Interlandi uh, called Why We're Losing the Battle with COVID-19. And it is a very in-depth and depressing look at the state of public health, both right now focusing in particular on Texas, but also throughout U.S. history and just going into how a lot of the dynamics that we're seeing play out so dangerously right now where public health officials are under attack and underfunded and not given the power to actually implement what needs to be implemented to keep all of us safe. That has happened you know, throughout U.S. history, but it also goes into public health's fraught past uh, in terms of race and how a lot of their enforcement measures have been targeted at communities of color in really damaging ways instead of in helpful ways. But what we're seeing right now is <laughs> public health departments scrambling to contain this virus with few resources, with their state leaders often uh, sidelining and denigrating them, and it, it's just playing out in a very dangerous way. And with fax machines. <laughs> Paige. Yeah. Um, so my story is from Politico um, by Dan Diamond and Adam Cancron, and it's called Inspector General. Medicare chief broke rules on her publicity contracts. And this is about an Inspector General report that has been 15 months in the making and is coming out today. And after Politico first reported on these contracts given by CMS to these kind of outside communications consultants, the IG investigated and found that uh, Verma violated federal contracting rules and she had directed some of these contracts to people who are allied with the GOP instead of using civil servants already inside the agency to help um, promote her work and, and do public relations work. And so the IG's report is pretty incriminating um, and it recommends some steps that CMS should take to, you know, try to make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen again. It's a really good read. And, um, you know, if anybody has been following uh, Dan and Adam's work on this, it's a really good example of, um, you know, investigative reporting and really kind of taking a deep look at um, the motivations behind how CMS has been, you know, awarding contracts. I know. If things that would normally be really big stories get sort of buried because there's so many other big stories. Um, but Absolutely. We'll, we'll, we'll try to bring you the ones that we can. All right. Well, I already did my extra credit. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our producer, Francis Ying, who makes us sound okay, even when we are all in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at J Rovner. Paige? PW underscore Cunningham. Aaron? At EE Mershon. Alice? At Alice Holstein. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>